6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 9 and 10. We are obviously together tonight in a study of the book of, as we would say, Jeremiah, regarded by some scholars as the spiritual giant of the Old Testament, which is really saying something, because the Old Testament includes some interesting people. But there are scholars who try to support the case that Jeremiah is certainly, if not the most spiritual person. I'm ignoring for the moment the obvious case of David and Abraham and some special situations. But certainly Jeremiah is often overlooked, often misunderstood, one of the most Longest thorough books in the Old Testament, and one with the deepest passions. And even though his style is not lofty like Isaiah, it's very articulate as a prophet of the earth. You will discover as we go his increasing call upon insights into nature to make his point. He's very much a poet, and yet very plain, direct, forthright, and enjoyable, even uh, in uh, a rather remote uh, language, i.e. English, from the original Hebrew. So uh, we're in Jeremiah. Since I assume you have access to the tapes, you can. those of you that might be coming in on the middle of this uh, can avail yourselves of, of the, especially the first tape for historical background and all of that. I've, I've sort of gotten away from this business of always reviewing too much because it becomes very evident if you listen to the tape that those that are listening to the tape get tired of hearing the you know, it's tough enough to hear my stories for four or five times through a series, let alone uh, get the excessive review. If uh, my perceptions are correct, we um, are ready to embark on Chapter 9. Um, we, and we're just continuing through um, a section of the book that's sometimes called the Temple Sermon. And that's a little uh, misleading because parts of it are seem to be parenthetical. I should highlight to you one more time that the organization of Jeremiah has eluded, e eluded a scholastic consensus. The uh, scholars have real difficulty figuring out quite where they all go. They're not chronological. There are segments that have been put together, and they're not necessarily chronological on that. Most experts agree. But exactly which pieces fit where, there's some debate on. For you and I, it doesn't bother us terribly because we're mostly interested in the man and his message. And while I will, I have, and I will continue to give you some historical perceptions because they're valuable because this era that Jeremiah lived in, it's not so much that you need the historical background for Jeremiah alone, but that era is really worth understanding because it's so pivotal in Israel's history. Uh, it's the era of Daniel. It's the era of Ezekiel. It's the era of, of many things, and they all hang heavily on the, the events leading up to and during the famous Babylonian captivity. And so, but actually our concern for the book is really is content. And, um, one of the things that we want to be continually alert to, alert to there's uh, several levels of our interest. One level of interest is historical. Jeremiah, what did he say? Where is it going? And, and what was his message to that people at that time? A second level of insight is personal, because the advice and concerns that God gives his people through Jeremiah affects you and I, because we're also his people. 
Our obligations are a little different, and yet in some respects different, some respects quite similar. And what God expects of them in some way has, has its parallel in our own personal lives. So as we read Jeremiah from time to time, well, let me put it this way. If you're reading Jeremiah and you're comfortable, you haven't read very carefully. Okay. Um, a third level of the book of Jeremiah that is speculative, I'm not insisting upon it and I'm not going to hammer it too hard, but I do want to lay it out because the Lord has put it on my heart. And that is the possibility, it's a tentative statement I'm coming up to, the possibility that what God said to Judah through Jeremiah, he might well say to the United States in our day. What Jeremiah says to Judah is that if they don't repent and change their ways, God is going to set, use their enemies as a mechanism for judgment. And um, he also points out to Judah that they should have had the example of the northern kingdom. Their sister, when the, when the nation Israel split into two after the Civil War, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, the northern house called the house of Israel, the southern house called the house of Judah, the, uh, some hundred years before, the northern kingdom went and was enslaved by the Assyrians as a form of judgment uh, on their idolatry. And what Jeremiah points out to Judah is that they've had the benefit of a hundred years' experience. They should have learned by that example. Therefore, their punishment may just be that much more severe. Um, well, if that's true, where's the United States stand? I mean, unique among nations on the planet Earth is our commitment in the founding of this country to the to to uh, freedom of worship the uh, the freedom the freedom to worship god in our lives was the preoccupation of the founding fathers diverse though their intellectual and uh, and uh, spiritual gifts were they they did in fact embody on a political experiment that's unique in the history of the world but a very much god centered and uh, we have prospered as a result of that and we live in a time now that may very properly be called the post-Christian era, especially in the United States. So, um, uh, as we uh, read Jeremiah and we and we see uh, God speaking to Judah through His voice, uh, you might, um, from time to time, be sensitive if the Holy Spirit lays it on your heart that there's some appropriate parallels to this country, because what Judah needed was not more arms against Egypt and Babylon. What he needed was repentance. And as somebody that's active in the defense industry, I'm very concerned about our defense predicament. But at the same time, uh, it's certainly clear the United States. But we need more than arms, um, despite our disadvantages. Uh, we need more. We need repentance. But anyway, chapter 9, verse 1. The Holy Spirit has spared you one more time. Maybe. I'm always intrigued when the Holy Spirit causes me to misplace some of my notes because I'm just <clears throat> certain that there are no accidents in God's kingdom, and that what he is doing is sparing you some really extraneous or even worse misleading material. So, so uh, however, I did find my notes for chapter 9, so sorry. I apologize. I thought he was... You should put at the top of your notepads Acts 17.11, which says, don't believe anything I tell you anyway, right? If uh, Luke tells you in Acts 17.11 not to believe anything Chuck Missler tells you, but to search the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people.
This verse is probably the most pathetic, in the strict sense, the word pathetic is what it really means, in the book. This is one of the, this is not the only reason, but this is the type of statement that Jeremiah makes. It gives him the title by which he's most commonly known, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was um, in deep agony most of his life because he cared for his people. He struggles with the certainty of their disaster as against the hope of their repentance. And he weeps, Oh my, oh that my head were waters, and in mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Now the slain of the daughter of my people is a phrase. The When you hear this daughter phrase used in a collective sense, it refers to the daughter of Zion, i.e. Judah, Jerusalem. I'll get you, it's another way of, uh, uh, it's a Jewish idiom, okay? Now, those of you that want to, you know, charge off from this, you can springboard from here to Romans chapter 9, because there's an interesting parallel. You're going to find that the book of Romans, chapter 9 in this case, and later on in our study of Romans 11 particularly, are, are parallel passages that um, we um, could, uh, could digress on, but uh, I don't think we'll take the time. We will uh, just keep moving here. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies and they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil, for they know not me, saith the Lord. Interesting. The sins of the tongue. Boy, there's a, you know, Psalm 12 and, and other places, uh, what is it, James 3, there are lots of places the Scripture talks about the this unruly instrument of our body. And um, it's funny, if we were going to pronounce a sermon title of the most offensive instrument of our body. You could think of several things, but what clearly surfaces as God's first candidate is our tongue. Our tongue. The sins. Interesting thing here, the tongue as the bow and the lies are the arrows. Isn't that graphic? They say Jeremiah does not use lofty language. Well, I guess it isn't lofty, but boy, it sure is graphic. The tongue is the bow, and the lies are the arrows. I think that's that'd be hard to prove. As I hear Jeremiah weeping over his people, I can't help but think of another prophet on uh, on a mountain, looking over Jerusalem, weeping for Jerusalem. Who would that be? Jesus, you bet. Especially the week, uh, uh, the, the the period just before he he goes into. Uh, present himself uh, uh, for his ultimate mission, uh, the suffering and death. He weeps over Jerusalem and, and, and wails over Jerusalem. And I often think of Jeremiah as a type, if you will, or foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. But in this case, um, Jeremiah gets very focused, and, and, and his concern is the adulterers and the assembly of the treacherous men. 
Um, verse four: Take heed, every um, take heed, everyone of his neighbor, and trust not in any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanders, and they will deceive every one his neighbor, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. It's interesting um, how this characteristic that Jeremiah is hammering away here on, he's dealing with one situation, and yet as we, as we think through ourselves, um, even in recent decades, you don't have to be some kind of broadly based philosopher to make the following observation. Those in the room that have been, say, in the business community, a few decades ago, you know, there was a concept at one time in business. I'm speaking not about moral men, but ethical men. I make a big distinction here. There are many men in business that are by no means moral men, but they, there's a business ethic. My word is my bond. And um, I can remember when I for formed my first corporation, late 60s, that I was dealing with some financiers that I have no idea whether they're moral men or not. But um, I can remember that uh, our first board meeting of this newly formed company that um, we sat around the table and as I was ready to sign the waiver of notice, which is the formal document that starts the meeting, um, I was startled because I, as, I, as I started to sign it, I stopped the proceeding. I said, do you realize that we've raised a million two in cash in the bank downstairs? We've got $3 million of computers being shipped from Massachusetts to Michigan. We have six guys who have quit their jobs in our temporary apartments in in." Uh, in uh, Massachusetts learning the software, have a Delaware corporation formed, and all of this without a scrap of paper being signed. I was startled to realize that we'd raised the money, got the equipment on its way, got all this done, all on telephone calls and handshakes, because I realized as I was signing this document in the first board, it was the first thing I'd signed as president of the company. Now, um, that today, I don't think would be your typical experience. Got a room full of attorneys, crossing T's, dotting I's. But what's interesting was it wasn't that long ago that um, I can remember as, in my own career that um, at least in, 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 in uh, professional circles, it was not like that, that there was a concept that is where, uh, on Wall Street too, the whole idea of uh, commitment's a commitment. And um, it isn't a question of um, Morality. It's a question of practical business ethics. Marketing costs are too high to keep finding new markets. Like when you deal with somebody, you deal with very frequently a situation where next year you're going to deal with the same guy for a similar contract. The automotive, automobile industry is like that. Uh, uh, you, you, you know, there are, after all, a limited number of U.S. Jap uh, uh, setting aside the Japanese problem, uh, you have a limited number of manufacturers. And if you're supplying that industry, you've got you know three or four choices. It's getting smaller as time goes on. But um, the, the, there was a concept of community, even in such strange places as Wall Street. Now, what I'm getting at is it's interesting that today that's an exception rather than the rule, whether it's because of people ascribe it to the fact that we're more transitory, there's more travel, there's more, you're trafficking more intensely with strangers, people you may not have dealt with before or necessarily will deal with again. The whole business community is, uh, is um, more uh, defensive. And what's interesting is is that, um, uh, as I read Jeremiah and do the background there, the observation is made that as a nation lacks spiritual dedication, human relations become insecure. 
That's really what is happening here, and that's exactly what's happening in the United States. As a nation um, lacks spiritual dedication, human relations become insecure. I, uh, and the obvious conclusion is that society itself is uh, threatened when mutual confidence is lost, when you no longer can um, operate uh, at whatever level you operate uh, in an atmosphere of uh, mutual confidence. Unity is uh, thus threatened from within. What, what makes our difficulty here in the United States is, is uh, a lack of moral fiber um, in our community. Uh, I travel uh, in the executive community, and, and we deal primarily in executives and hiring and so forth. And one of the conclusions I have come to, and this is a conclusion of this is a change I have observed in the last decade or two, is the absence of the sanctity of a commitment among, I'm probably speaking of men, but I think, and I'm, I, I, I don't pretend to understand women, so I'll stay off that subject. But among men, I can tell you, maybe I'm sort of old-fashioned, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, and I have some perhaps some bizarre ideas, but I find it very tough to find men with character, men with fiber, men who will honor their commitment. I have spent the last several years in legal bills of people that have been trying to cheat me, and, and some of these uh, would espouse a Christian calling. And um, uh, the, what, as I watch all this happen, um, my, my belief is that as we look at marriages or we look at businesses, part of the problem is that we don't have men in our, enough men, real men, in our society. I think that all gets back to a spiritual condition, not a question, it's not a question of hiring more lawyers. The United States has a world leadership position in the number of attorneys per capita. Uh, there are no, no societies that have as many attorneys per capita as the United States has. That should tell us something. That tells us that there's, and I'm not here to disparage attorneys. I sometimes do that humorously at certain audiences, but that's not my motive today. They are a measure of our lack of spiritual fiber. And uh, it's interesting that we can find other cultures that have less of the heritage than we have that do a better job at having a, a, a sense of values that indeed are operative. But anyway, moving on. How'd I get off on all that? <laughs> Trust not in any brother. I guess that's what triggered it. For every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk in slanders. They will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, saith the Lord. And I guess my whole thesis in the last couple of paragraphs was just that that description is not unique to just the times that Jeremiah was dealing with in, in, in the nation of Judah. I submit to you that it's painfully uh, in our society and getting worse. That's my real thing. Every, everybody, every group has had their, every year has had their problems. But I, my, I submit to you that that's a problem of serious proportions in our lives. Verse 7. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and test them, and how shall I do for the daughter of my people? Their tongue is like an arrow shot out, it speaketh deceit. One speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in heart he lieth in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? 
For the mountains will I take up a weeping and wailing, and for the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation, because they are burned up, so that none can pass through them. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the fowl of the heavens and the beast are fled. They are gone. And I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of jackals, and I will make of the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Now, that sounds like flowery language. If you were hearing uh, Jeremiah, you'd say, gee, Jeremiah, you're getting a little carried away there. Are you going to punish the animals and the, in the, in the land itself? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, this idea of visualizing Jerusalem, this vibrant, uh, vital city as a den of jackals, it wasn't many years when the total captivity of, of, of um, Judah was extant, and Jerusalem was, in fact, a heap of rubble. One of the remarkable things in Babylon, when you read the book of Daniel, how Daniel always measures time by the morning or evening sacrifices of the temple, and we have to remind ourselves that when Daniel was writing that there was no temple, that was in his mind. Several hundred miles away, there's a pile of rubble. And uh, it was later, at the end of the captivity, they were allowed to go back and rebuild. But indeed, Jeremiah's uh, prophecies came vividly, you know, very uh, vividly uh, to pass. His message is not only not received, by the way, we're looking, getting ahead of ourselves here, you can discover it, not only was he not received, but there was a secret plot to assassinate him over this position. And the participants in that plot weren't some rival town, it was his hometown, and his family, and his friends, he discovers were in that plot. And we're, we, that, that comes later. But uh, he's, he, has, he does not have a popular message. They not only do not receive his message, they, you know, uh, uh, do the, you know, they, you have to do the obvious thing. You shoot the bearer, bad news, right? <laughs> so uh, they try. Verse 12, who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it? Why, why is the land perished and burned up like a wilderness that none passes through? And the Lord saith, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked in it, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart, and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. Balaam being the plural of Baal, that is the, the um, idols. Don't get confused with the guy in numbers. That's a different issue. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. The word there, actually, the lana in the Hebrew means bitter food. It is here translated wormwood. And as we, uh, as students of the book of Revelation, what is it, chapter 9, I guess, the word wormwood rings a bell. And those of you that haven't heard, that you might find it interesting, that the Russian word for Wormwood is Chernobyl. And so those of you that are uh, interested in, you know, other possible interpretations of Revelation, you can lay that one on yourself in terms of, uh, I assume that the Revelation 9 is translated that, uh, the, 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 that the angel, you know, that puts in the water is what? Chernobyl. So <laughs> you, can, you can run with that if you like. I'll, I'll leave it late. Um, 
But the, the intent here is clear that they will have, their waters will be poisoned. And God says in verse 16, and I will scatter them also among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the morning women that they may come and send for the skillful women that they may come and let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids, eyelids gush out with waters. Now, there's a certain amount of sarcasm there, but what it is referring to here is the use of professional mourners. And in that society, as many other societies have, there was a, a practice of having, if you had occasion to mourn, to get it organized, you know. And uh, well, we do the same thing in this country, actually, when we have a demonstration, whether it's for anti-arms or anti-this or that, and we have these spontaneous uprisings you see on television. I'm very fascinated to discover those are all very well planned and organized and pre-negotiated with the police. I was very dis I was fascinated to discover that. So we have the same kind of uh, what would appear to be uh, administrative hypocrisy. Um, but um, anyway, uh, here they're dealing with, with the concept of professional mourners. I think we've all run into that in various cultural settings. We've also encountered in the New Testament where was it, where was it? Was it the, the, uh, Jairus, he say, he says, you know, uh, made them go away and he went and, you know, uh, took care of that <laughs> as only God could. This idea also, uh, in verse 16 is, uh, scatter them among the nations is a good springboard where we could go to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 as a couple of examples. Uh, there's dozens of those. We won't take the time now because we'll do it. We did it before and we'll do it again a couple of evenings. Um, the classical passages in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of Moses, where God has prophesied that they would be scattered among the nations. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.